following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We had a, a good vacation. Thank you for letting us take it. Uh, spent most of our time around here to take a couple of day trips away, and then three days in Kentucky picking up our kiddos from their two-week time with Grandma and Grandpa. This has been a week of detox for them. Trying to get over uh, sweets and uh, unlimited iPod and television and whatever else they wanted and fun and activities. It must be fun to be a grandparent. Yes, it is. Okay. There are very few grandparents in here who can affirm that. So thank you that you were able to do it for us. It must be fun because you get to spoil these kids that you love for uh, however long you have them and then send them back to their parents to deal with all the ramifications of that going forward. But uh, we've been dealing with it and it's been it's been good. Uh, I was asked uh, by Bruce on my way up here if I had any funny pictures, and I don't. I know, I know. It's like the it's like the vacation tradition, right? That whenever I go away, I always bring you back things. And I told him there's a reason why I don't. It's because in that entire two week period, I saw just one thing, just one thing that was. Uh, worth taking a picture of, and it was actually worth taking a video of, and it was so big, it's hard to bring. I may work with Jordan to do it, but I'll tell you the story at least, and then we can look at the scriptures, get to the important stuff in a minute. But um, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago now, I received a text from Caleb Coaston, I and some other guys, that was a video of a man on a gurney, face down, okay, strapped to a gurney, going through a drive through at McDonald's. And when he sent this, uh, this video, I think his thing was talk about commitment or something like that. And I thought for sure this was a made-up video that, you know, he just found it on YouTube somewhere and decided to send it out because he thought it would be funny. I asked him, he's like, oh, no, I'm up in Hampton. I just saw this. It's the only little clip I can get. So uh, last Monday, was it? Or not this past Monday, Monday prior, Jamie wanted me to go to Fort Monroe because I've never been to Fort Monroe all these years I've lived here. So we go up to... Uh, 64, go through the tunnel, get off on Mallory Street there to go to Fort Monroe. And as we're coming up to the, to the top of the, uh, the uh, off-ramp there to turn on Mallory Street, lo and behold, what is right in front of us? And it is the man, this is the, the, the same man, apparently, the man on his gurney going down the sidewalk on Mallory Street towards McDonald's. So instantly I make my wife, who's driving, pull off to the side. And I pull out my camera and I start videoing this guy, which she's like, horrified like that I'm doing this but I'm like you've got to let me get this this video so we pull into a a bank or Burger King or something and I'm sitting there videoing the man videoing the man as he's scooting down and I I I, only way I could do this is like if I laid across these face down and was like controlling it like that would be the only way to illustrate for you what this guy was doing but we watched him all the way through the drive-thru at McDonald's paying getting his bag and then leaving, and I'm just sitting there going, I cannot believe I just saw that. And all you can do now is imagine it, because I don't quite know how to show it to you, but it's true. So I apologize to Caleb for ever doubting him. That was, in fact, a true story. And I, by sheer happenstance, ran across that. So that was all I had for you. Sorry, it's not very much. Uh, We're here in Mark chapter 4. It's going to be a little bit different today, a little bit uh, less time, uh, just because we had spent some time on the graduation things and with our singing. But I'm going to take advantage of the, the different Sunday to do something a little different this morning as we begin this new section here in Mark chapter 4. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 34. 
this entire section here of Jesus' parables that, are, that Mark records for us here. Then we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to look at what these parables are, how to rightly understand them this morning. We will look at Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Mark writes this. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn. And be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately they fall away, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Jesus, as we get back into Mark this morning, we take some time up front in this new section to really think about you and what you're doing here in this section, I pray, God, that we will not get lost in the details. That we will remember that the main thing here 
is you and your communication of truth to us via the means of these parables. And so while there may be components, Lord, that we struggle with and understanding, I, I just pray that you will keep that central focus at the forefront of our minds, that as we sit here at your feet over the next few Sundays and, and think about these things with you, that, that your spirit will open our eyes to understand the deeper truths at work here. You have spoken to us to help us understand your kingdom. You have come in this section of Mark and have proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God, of this gospel of yourself. And so now these parables are designed to help us understand it more in its fullness. And I pray, Lord, that 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 will be the case. And even today, as we lay a foundation for that understanding, God, will you Will you turn our minds to you? Will you, will you open our eyes to a right understanding of your word, Lord? Help us to, to be sensitive and open to all these things so that as we always pray and as I hope we always will pray, that you will make us more like yourself through this endeavor. And so we give this time to you. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. I don't know if you recall this or not, but when I first announced that we were going to be studying the Gospel of Mark, I told you that one of the reasons that I wanted us to study the Gospel of Mark was so that we could actually sit at Jesus' feet and hear his words. In other words, it seemed to me, kind of in the past as I was thinking through this, that we, we spent a lot of time talking about Jesus and, and reading about Jesus, but not a lot of time actually listening to him. Now, now, as I say that, I, I recognize a danger that I, I want to make sure you, you, you don't misunderstand something. When we were studying in the past, you know, whether it was First John or Colossians or, or Genesis 1 through 11 or any of the other things we have studied along the way, it's not as if those times and, and in those studies that we weren't sitting at Jesus' feet. Because all the scriptures are about Jesus, right? All the scriptures are Jesus' words to us. And so whether we're in 1 John or we're in Colossians or Genesis or here in Mark, we're always, always listening to Jesus, or at least we always should be. So, so I'm not trying to create this false dichotomy between the, the four Gospels and the other 62 books of the Old and New Testaments as if somehow in the Gospels we get to hear and see Jesus in a way that we don't hear and see him elsewhere. I would very much disagree with that. We see him from Genesis to Revelation nonstop. It all points back to him. Every story whispers his name, right? And yet, and yet I would say that in the Gospels we get a unique opportunity. to to sit with him and walk with him during these years when he was on earth in this human body and and listen to all that he had to say and do and teach during that time. And so it's for that reason that that we have come and have have tried to, to spend some time here in the Gospel of Mark. And yet, even in saying that, notice how many and yets there are, even in saying that, it has struck me up to this point in our study of Mark, we've finished three chapters now, it struck me how little Jesus actually speaks in the Gospels. I, I did a quick, um, just a, a, a quick little word count. It's really not that important, but I thought it was helpful. And in Mark chapter one, chapters one through three, there are 2,288 English words, okay? English words. So it's been translated. It's not the same in Greek, but for our purposes, it's useful. 2,288 English words in the first three chapters. How many words 
out of those 2,288 words actually came from Jesus' mouth in these first three chapters? Want to take a guess? How'd you know? Okay, I'm kidding. It wasn't that. Not far off. It was 547. Less than a quarter. Less than one quarter of everything we have seen so far in Mark, Mark chapters 1 through 3, are actual words from Jesus. Now, Mark talks about Jesus speaking to people, or he says this to someone, he says be healed, but like he doesn't actually quote the words, he just indicates that Jesus was speaking, and so we don't really know what's being said. And we also recognize that clearly Jesus doesn't walk around three quarters of the time like this. You know, he's not mute as he's doing his, his ministry, and yet, in terms of what is recorded for us here in Mark, at least in these first three chapters, less than a quarter of it is actually Jesus' words or teachings for us. But, but all of that is about to change here because once we come into chapter 4, we're going to run into a full block of recorded teachings from Jesus. And I want to draw your attention this morning to the kind of teaching that it is. And notice that, that Mark sets this up for us in verse 1 by saying that, again, which tells you, right, that this isn't the first time that Jesus has had these kinds of teaching opportunities. It's just the first time Mark has really recorded it for us. But again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. There's a very large crowd that's gathered about him so that he gets into a boat. I'm assuming the crowd is pressing in on him and he needs to get some room. So he gets into a boat and he sits in it on the sea. The whole crowd is gathered around the seashore on the sand there in the sea. And he is teaching them many things in parables. And, and I'm obviously drawing our attention to this idea of, of, of the parable. Because if you have read the Gospels at all in your past, whether you have been in church for years or you're new to this, if you have pretty much ever read the Gospels and you have recognized that, that Jesus often uses parables in his teaching. In fact, he uses them a lot. Uh, Neil Lightfoot, who wrote a two-volume set on the parables of Jesus, estimates that depending on how you count things, because there's a little bit of, of flexibility in this, but depending on how you count things, roughly one-third of Jesus' public teaching is done, recorded public teaching, I should say, is done via parable. One-third. That's a ton. I mean, you won't find that kind of, of percentage in any speaker today, any preacher. If you go back and listen to all of my messages over the past nearly seven years now, you, you won't find a third of my, of my sermons are even stories. I hardly tell stories after I get past the first like minute or two of, of my message. I mean, this is, this is incredible for the sheer volume of it. In fact, even as you look outside of the New Testament and you look at other things that were around Jesus in that day, there is no other ancient teacher of any sort that used parables as much as Jesus used parables. So, so as we're coming into this section you know, whether that's a, a good percentage for all his teaching, both what's recorded or what's, and what's not, or maybe that's just what is written down for us here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, by the way, records no parables of Jesus, just as an interesting fact. It's kind of a big deal. It's a big deal that we, that we understand these things because parables play a huge role in these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and they make up nearly, nearly the totality of this next section that we're going to study. And so, 
since this morning was going to be a little different anyway with the graduation stuff, I decided that I wanted to take this morning to try to help us understand what a parable even is. Because quite frankly, whether you realize it or not, there is a ton of misunderstanding about the parables themselves and, and, and what they are and how they're supposed to be understood and why they're being used. And if they make up a third of Jesus's teaching, it's kind of important that we, we get this thing. Does that make sense? Like we, we need to understand it if, as we work through Mark, a third of his teaching is going to be in this form. And so what we're going to do this morning is just answer those questions. What are parables? How should we interpret them? Why are they being used? And, and hopefully in asking and answering these questions, we're going to lay a foundation that as we come back in next week and the week after and week after, they're going to help you understand what Jesus is doing here in Mark 4 in a way like you never have before. So let's, let's just work through the three questions. Number one, what are parables? Well, I don't know about you, but in the past, I've heard uh, this particular definition of parable, that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Have you ever heard that definition? What it's trying to communicate is that typically, if not always in a parable, you have um, a situation put forth that is very common, right? It's, it's fishing, it's farming, it's, it's daily life of some sort in the context of the person who's teaching and the person who's hearing. It's an earthly story that, that has some kind of, of heavenly meaning. Can I suggest to you that we all need to forget that definition forever, Okay. It's not that the definition is completely wrong. In fact, there is truth in the definition. The problem is, is that that definition isn't complete enough. It's not accurate enough. You see, the word parable here, Sharon told me this, is a Greek word. <laughs> it's a Greek word that literally means a throwing alongside. So, so the idea here is that you're, you're placing a, a thing or an idea next to another thing or idea. For the purpose of comparison, okay, you're, you're, you're going to throw it out there to see how these two things compare in some way or another. And it, it won't always be in story form. In fact, parables in the New Testament, Jesus' parables specifically, they're the only ones we're interested in, take many different forms as we read through the New Testament. Sometimes they do take the form of a story, right? You're in Mark chapter 4, just look at verses 3 through 9, and you see probably one of the top three best-known parables in the New Testament, right? It's the parable of the sower. And, and you think about the, this parable of the sower, it's, it's pretty lengthy as parables go. Most parables are pretty short. This one's pretty long. There, there are lots of details given, which, which Jesus himself tells us that all these details have significance within the meaning of the story. You can also think of the, the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, another very well-known parable in story form, or the parable of the prodigal son, all these parables being put forth in, in, in story form, but they're not the only type of parable Jesus gives. Sometimes parables don't take a story form. They take the form of what I would just call a poignant illustration of truth, just a, a quick poignant little illustration of truth. And we've already seen this in Mark chapter 3. If you turn one page back and look at Mark chapter 3, verse 23, when he's dealing with the scribes and Pharisees who are telling people that he is possessed by Satan, notice it in verse 23. I'm not going to put it up behind me, so you have to look down. In verse 23, he says that he called them, the scribes and Pharisees, to him, and he said to them in parables, 
How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. These really aren't stories. These are really just little poignant illustrations of truth. Hey, look, you get it, right? If a kingdom is divided against itself, it can't stand. You get it? Simple, easy, got it, good. A house divided against itself, it can't stand. You understand that concept? Very good. Well, then if Satan is divided against himself, he can't stand. The point becomes very, very clear as Jesus begins to apply it. Similarly with that one he uses at the end, if, hey, look, no one enters a strong man's house and plunders his house if, unless he's bound first. But if he's bound, then it can happen. What's, again, what's Jesus' point? I've bound the strong man. The only reason I'm able to do the things I'm doing against Satan and his kingdom is because I am stronger than, greater than him. I've bound him, and now his house is mine. And so, so in those poignant little reminders of truth, illustrations of truth, you, you, you see how Jesus makes his point very clear in a very, very simple way. Again, you're going to see here in Mark 4, verse 21. Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Well, duh. If I bring a, if I bring a lamp into a house, and like, oh, it's really dark in here. There's no electricity. Let me go hide this under this basket here so nobody can see it. N- nobody would do that. A- again, simple, little, poignant illustrations of truth. That's what some parables are. Y- you see them sometimes come across as, as almost proverbs, really. Not even poignant illustrations of truth, just, just proverbs. For example, in Luke 4... Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in his hometown, hometown of Nazareth. And as he comes into the synagogue, he opens the scrolls, he reads to them, then he closes them, hands them back to the attendant. And the first thing he says to the people listening is, doubtless you will say to me this parable, though in your ESV it says proverb, but the Greek word here is parabole, it's parable. Physician, heal thyself. Three words, parable. Physician, heal thyself. And he takes that and he applies it to the situation because what the people of Nazareth wanted was for him to come and do all these great works that he had done everywhere else. He wanted, they wanted him to come and do it there in front of them. And he says, a prophet is without honor in his own town. He, he uses this almost a proverb-like parable. It's not even an illustration of truth. It's just a, a little saying of wisdom to make his point there. And then number four, Number four, sometimes parables can be riddles. They can be stories. They can be poignant illustrations of truth. They can be proverbs. Number four, they can be riddles. In Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, he's had this um, altercation with the Pharisees. I can't wait to get to this one. Altercation with the Pharisees about his disciples not washing their hands before they eat. Okay, so they see the disciples, they're eating with unwashed hands, right? And they say, hey, they are defiling themselves. And let me just pause there so you understand the problem. The, the Pharisees aren't germaphobes, okay? You got it? They're not worried about sanitation. What they're talking about when they talk about defilement is ritual defilement, religious defilement. That, that, that the, the disciples, by eating with these unwashed hands, have made themselves ritually unclean, religiously unclean in God's eyes. It's kind of the same as like eating bacon for them, right? You can't, you can't have a ham sandwich and be religiously pure, in this culture, and in a similar way, you can't eat with the unwashed hands and still be pure in God's eyes in this ritual religious way. And Jesus is like, what's your problem? 
you've taken a tradition of man, that's nowhere in the Old Testament, you've taken this tradition of man and you've elevated elevated it to being a commandment of God himself and he chastises them at length. And then later, verse 14, we read this, that he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Because they're hearing this and they're like, what? What do you mean that the things that go in don't defile us, the things that come out? That doesn't, that doesn't compute in their world of understanding ritual defilement. And so he says to them, well, then are you also without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean, Mark writes. And he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. It's not, it's, defilement doesn't come from the external, it comes from within because it's out of the heart of man that come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and all these other things. The, the, the riddle of the parable that he gives them causes them to question the very nature of everything they've ever been taught in their culture about ritual and religious defilement and understanding the very heart of man. And so Jesus takes that opportunity to explain it for them. And so, as you can see, a parable can take many different forms, many different forms, not just stories, but illustrations of truth and proverbs and riddles and some other categories I could highlight as well if I wanted to. That's why that definition of I gave you a front doesn't work. They're not just earthly stories with heavenly meanings. That's okay for some things, but it's not big enough. And and so I want to give you a different definition this morning. And it's mine. It's kind of pieced together for some other things, but I think it will help us and it will guide us both this morning and for the next few mornings as well as we we think through this. But, But here's how I would define a parable. That a parable is a comparative idea whose meaning does not lie at the surface, but that requires you to think deeply to understand the larger point being made in order to elicit a response. The other one was way easier to remember, wasn't it? This one's one's the hard one to remember, but I I really think it's a better and more complete and more accurate definition that, that a parable is a comparative idea. It's something that in whatever form it's going to be placed is going to be laid next to something. And the meaning of the parable isn't the surface level, right? It's not, it's not just about sowers sowing seed. There's something deeper, more significant that you're supposed to understand. And it's, it's going to force you to think deeply about the meaning of that thing. The purpose of which then ultimately is to elicit some kind of response out of you. It might be a response to action where you feel like now you need to do something differently or more or better or stop doing something. It might be a response of attitude of heart to to change the way you feel about things, to maybe make you angry. Maybe it's to offend you purposefully. Jesus likes to offend people, and he's going to use parables sometimes to do that. Or it might be to encourage, to calm, to quiet. But but whatever the response, the, the point isn't just to tell a story. The point is to tell something, uh, uh, use some form to compare a set of ideas so that you'll think deeply about it and elicit a response. I I was reading somebody this week, and I couldn't find it again after I read it, but they made the observation that in our culture today, 
we don't really have a, 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 not to use the word comparative too much, but a comparative concept in our, in our culture, except for one thing, and that's the political cartoon. They were making the point that, that in modern American culture, the political cartoon often does the same thing. So, for example, I brought one here to show us, and, and you can I'll give you a second to read it. Hopefully you can read everything. The man who's the U.S. public, he's standing in a body scanner that says NSA surveillance instead of TSA. And the guy tells him, now stay like that forever. The, as you look at this, you, because you're a part of this culture, you understand all the connections that are being made here in this cartoon. That the, the, the guy, I think it's Mike Lukovic or Lukovic, whatever you, how you pronounce his name, he's trying to help you envision the ideas that are going on around the whole NSA surveillance problem. And that the idea is that we as the Americans are now going to be, American public are going to be subject to this kind of scrutiny, this kind of invasion forever. And as you think about that idea, you should be having some kind of response to the cartoon. Maybe you're okay with that sur- kind of surveillance. And so in your heart, you're like, that's fine. I'm, I'm all for it. I got nothing to hide. Or maybe inside you're like, no, I don't really like this. I didn't like it when I had to do that at the airport. I sure don't want to have to do that with every email, phone call, and everything else I have for the rest of my life. One way or another, the cartoon elicits some kind of response for us, no matter what your response may be. Here's another one. A man on top of a pile of money yelling to a a person down at the bottom who's asking for a minimum wage hike saying, your greed is hurting the economy. And again, we, we read this cartoon and we interpret it that the guy who has all the cash, right, who's enjoying all the benefits of wealth, is pointing at the man at the bottom who has none, accusing him of being the problem. Now, you may agree or disagree with this cartoon. It doesn't matter to me. What matters is that in the same way that the parable does in Jesus' day, it compares an idea that causes you to think about it and then elicits a response from you. I think the guy was, the guy was pretty dead on. That the political cartoon is a good form of understanding parables in Jesus' day. They're not just stories. They're not just illustrations. They're not just there to, to make you just to have a little thought or like mull over something for a moment. It's there to draw something out of you in a way that, that should change what you think, do, or feel. Well, once you understand these points, you're going you're gonna to have to respond to them. This is what a parable is. We're going to keep seeing parables throughout the Gospels. And so I wanted you to understand that up front. Number two, number two, how should we understand parables? Well, I would say we should understand them just plainly or normally. Plainly and normally. It amazes me how inconsistently many people treat the Scriptures in example to how they treat the rest of of any form of communication they encounter. For example, if I came to you and I said to you, hey, last night we had a great party, a bunch of people came over, they brought a bunch of food, and I ate a ton. Instantly, you all know that I'm lying, right? I didn't eat a ton. Okay, and it's so silly, but it, it just works for what we're doing, and I'll give you a biblical illustration of this in a minute. You recognize that all I'm doing here is using hyperbole to tell you that I had a lot to eat last night. And yet we come to Jesus' words in a parable where he says, hey, the kingdom of God is like like the mustard seed, which is the smallest smallest seed on all the earth. And everybody who's like, wait, 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 I took botany classes, and I know that's not the smallest seed. Let me tell you how to respond to those people biblically. I want you to give them the the most scornful look you can muster and say to them, you idiot. (laughs) 
Don't you recognize that Jesus talks like we talk? He uses language in the ways that we use it too. That's going to be true of the parables. It's going to be true of other things as well, as he just simply is making the point that the mustard seed is a small seed. You get it? He doesn't have to to spell it out that way. He can just... He can just say it plainly and normally like we would everything else. And this is a problem generally with how people read the scriptures, but it's a particularly a problem with how people read the parables. You see, I, I told you a moment ago that a parable is an idea whose meaning doesn't lie at the surface, right? But that forces you to think deeply. Well, the problem is, is that some people, when they come to the parables for some reason, they think like way too deeply. And in doing so, they miss the point of the parables. And in the third century, there was a guy named Origen who was a, a kind of a scholar of that time. And, and he believed that pretty much all the scriptures should be interpreted as allegory, as an allegory. So an allegory is when every detail of a story represents something else. And so uh, Origen would see this, and he saw it particularly in the parables. And so, for example, you know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? There's a guy who's going from Jerusalem to, to Jericho. He's jumped by some robbers. He's left for dead on the side of the road. A priest sees him, walks around. A Levite sees him, walks around. Finally, a Samaritan sees him stops, binds up his wounds, puts him on his animal, takes him to the inn, pays the innkeeper to take care of him and says, I'll be back. So Origen sees this story, and Jesus, excuse me, let me throw this out there. Jesus tells us the point of the story. The point of the story is that we should go and show mercy likewise, to be a neighbor to those around us. He's in a conversation with a, with a man who's trying to justify his lack of keeping the law on this point. Origen, though, takes this and interprets it this way. The man who fell among robbers was Adam. And Jerusalem represents heaven. And Jericho, since it was away from Jerusalem, represents the world. The robbers are man's enemies, the devil and his comrades. The priest stands for the law, the Levite for the prophets, and the good Samaritan for Christ himself. The beast on which the wounded man is placed is Christ's body, which bears the fallen Adam. The inn is the church. The two coins are the father and the son. And the good Samaritan promises that he will come back again because Christ will come back at the end of the age. Got it? The problem here is that that sounds actually pretty good. Like, I mean, that'll preach. I could preach that if I wanted to. I could preach that. But but here's the problem is that it, it ignores what Jesus says is the point of the parable And it ignores the entire context in which the parable is given. And and when you start ignoring what's plain in front of you, the only thing that limits your interpretation to that point is your imagination. So, hey, I can do what Origen did also. So the man is an alien, and the good Samaritan is actually Burt Reynolds. Because Samaritans had mustaches. Few people know that. But he's actually Burt Reynolds. And the inn is Motel 6. The innkeeper is Tom Baudet, of course. He's kept the light on for him. The two coins represent country music and Sudoku. I can keep going. Origin sounds better because at least his are kind of biblical spiritual concepts, but his are no better than mine in the end. I can just make up stuff as well. This highlights for us the, the two most important rules for interpreting the parables. First, you always have to discover the central truth that the parable puts forth because most of the time, the vast majority of the time, the parable has only one main point. It's illustrating or explaining one thing. And all the details given around that point may or may not have significance, but thankfully, much of the time, Jesus tells us what those points are, and so we don't even really have to think about it too deeply. Second, you have to remember the context in which the parable is being told. And just think about that for a moment. If a parable is, a, is something that's a comparative idea that's laid aside something else, 
to help you understand that better, to think deeply and respond. But all of a sudden, I take away the context. What do I have left? Physician, heal thyself. What does that mean? If I don't understand the context in which Jesus says this, I have no, no way of interpreting that statement that will make any sense at all in the text. And so as we work through these things, we're going to strive to read them plainly and normally and get the main point and to remember the context and in so doing, hopefully really understand what Jesus is saying. I got to be done here. Why were they used? Um, I'll say this and explain it in another Sunday. They were used to reveal truth to some and yet hide hide them to others. That's what Jesus tells us. So that seeing people wouldn't see. And so that hearing people wouldn't hear. And in the parables, I would say that we get a real sense of what it means to understand spiritual truth, because spiritual truth is for those who have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, which is an encouragement for us as we go out, I think. I'll, I'll be done with this, I guess. But, but think of the cartoons for a moment. If you had no, if you were lived in your home, never watched television, never read the newspaper, nothing, never talked to people, and you had no clue about what was going on, those cartoons would make no sense, right? The, the cartoons that I showed you only make sense because you, you have a, a, some way of interpreting and reading and understanding them to, to get the meaning of what the cartoonist is trying to show. Well, in a similar way, as we speak to those around us, if they don't have the spiritual eyes and ears to hear the message we speak to them, it sounds like foolishness. Paul himself says this, that the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Unless they have the spiritual eyes and ears to hear, they, they can make no sense of, what, of what's being said. And so as we go out speaking spiritual truth to those around us, we recognize that it's, it's not our duty, it's not our mission, it's not our job, it's not our responsibility to make them believe you. We never can argue anyone or explain it well enough that, that they come to understand the truth that that ability to understand, to accept, to repent, to believe it, that's God's work. Ours is merely to, to speak it. So but don't be discouraged. Jesus spoke spiritual truth to thousands, and he was rejected by most. Jesus, Jesus spoke truth to, to crowds and multitudes, and only a few believed, but, but to those whom God opened their eyes and opened their ears to hear Nothing on earth could stop them from understanding and responding to the truth God gave them. Jesus, this has been a very quick, I feel like a very rushed time, just trying to understand these parables. And, and my goal, Lord, here has simply, simply been to, to help us as we work through them in the weeks ahead recognize that what you are doing here is explaining truth to us in a way that that for those of us who have the spiritual eyes and ears to hear, we will see the deeper things of, of what your kingdom is and what it's going to be. And so I pray, God, that as we work through these in the weeks ahead, that you will help our eyes and ears to be open, that we will be sensitive to the context, sensitive to the points that you yourself are making, recognizing that ultimately, Lord, this is your truth, not ours, and, and it's not ours to play with or, or change or adjust or be inventive with, Lord, we want to simply take you at your word and go from there. And so I pray, God, that as we do, we will we'll remember the things we've learned today, that this will be a foundation to build on in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.